Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. This episode of Forgotten History is brought to you by Magellan TV, a new kind of streaming service dedicated to bringing you the best documentaries from around the world. Today we have something special for you as our first story is exclusive to the podcast and hasn't been aired anywhere else. On today's episode, the History Guy tells the stories of several early pioneers in two industries, console video gaming and aviation. The first story is about Jerry Lawson, an engineer who changed the way we play video games forever. The second is about Bessie Coleman, an early African-American pilot who was among the first women to get an aviation license, and who became a prominent barnstormer. And now, let me introduce the History Guy. Video gaming has come a long way in the past 50 years, from the days of Pong and Pac-Man to the enormous worlds of massively multiplayer online games, and now even virtual reality games. But before Xbox, before the NES, even before the Atari 2600, there was a little-known video game console called the Fairchild Channel F. The lead designer was Jerry Lawson, and his work would help to materially transform the world of video games forever. It is history that deserves to be remembered. The earliest video games appeared in the 1950s as research projects in universities and large corporations. One of the predecessors to video games was the cathode ray tube amusement device, an interactive electronic game in which a player could control the trajectory of simulated arcing artillery shells using knobs. Patented in 1947, the game was never manufactured, didn't run on a computing device, so by most definitions, it wasn't yet a video game. The first computers were built during World War II to aid the Allied war effort, and following the war advances that allowed computers to be easily reprogrammed, as well as the commercialization of computers by companies such as IBM, allowed large corporations, government entities, and universities to acquire computers. In this environment, the first video games, largely built on unique hardware that was destroyed afterward, appeared. The first public demonstration of a game was in 1950 at the Canadian National Exhibition. The game was an arcade version of Tic-Tac-Toe called Birdie the Brain, in which a player competed with simple artificial intelligence. The four-meter-tall computer that ran Birdie was dismantled after the exhibition. Early engineers created a variety of games at this time, both in their free time and as displays of computing power. In 1952, the first simulated checkers game was successfully developed and began influencing later versions. The earliest chess game in the 50s was rudimentary, as the computer that ran it wasn't sophisticated enough to play a full game and could only compute mate in two problems. The 50s saw significant improvements, such as games that could update graphics in real time. Perhaps the most famous milestone was the 1958 creation of Tennis for Two, which was a hit at Brookhaven National Laboratory's annual public exhibition, using computing that calculated trajectory with wind resistance. It used two handmade controllers that had a knob to control the trajectory of the ball and a button to hit the ball. Again, this game was dismantled after its creation and largely forgotten for years. University students developed more simple games, and war simulations and business management simulations were also designed. In the 1960s, Harvard and MIT students developed Space War, inspired by science fiction books. Users could control one of two spaceships that fought across the screen. This game was copied and played across academic institutions. The game was more widespread than any previous game, but still reached only a very limited audience. But it inspired others to design their own games. 
The 60s also saw the development of programming languages like BASIC, which allowed games to be designed and programmed for more than one specific computer. It was in the 1970s that a video game industry would finally be born, and Jerry Lawson was among the earliest designers. Born December 1, 1940, in Brooklyn, Gerald Anderson Lawson's father was a dock worker and his mother worked for the city. His grandfather had been educated as a physicist, although he couldn't find work as one. They prioritized an education for their son, who became interested in ham radios and chemistry. Lawson would later credit his first grade teacher with encouraging him to become something influential, like George Washington Carver. I had a picture of Carver on the wall next to my desk, and she said, This could be you. I'll never forget that woman for that, Lawson said. His mother got him into a school across town to give him the best possible education. He later attended both Queens College and the City College of New York, but never completed a degree. Around 12 years old, he started building himself a ham radio in his bedroom. Using a manual and buying parts piece by piece, he successfully built one and hung an antenna out of the apartment he lived in with his family in the projects in Jamaica, New York. At first, he couldn't get a license to run the radio, but learned that if you lived in a federal housing project, you didn't need the permission of the managers of the building. He got his license. I built it, and it worked, he said on the radio. I think the greatest joy I ever had in my life was when I put that thing together by myself, with nobody helping me. He says he built and sold walkie-talkies, and as a teenager, he repaired television sets. He worked for a variety of electronics companies, including PRD Electrics, Grumman Aircraft, Federal Aircraft, before moving to San Francisco to work for Kaiser Electronics, working on military projects. He helped fix radar sets and used early military computers. In 1970, he joined Fairchild Semiconductor. While that name isn't likely familiar, in the 1970s, the company was a big deal. They co-invented integrated circuits, worked on the Apollo program, and specialized in the creation of semiconductor transistors. In this time, he developed Demolition Derby, an early arcade game, in his garage. Completed in 1975, it was one of the earliest microprocessor-driven games. He did more than that in his garage. He rebuilt a computer, a PDP-8, among the earliest commercial microcomputers. And the company that produced them contacted him, saying he had the only operating PDP-8 west of the Mississippi, and asked him to teach classes on it in his garage. The computer was large, 8 feet by 6 feet and 3 feet deep. Living in San Francisco put him close to Menlo Park, which in 1975 became the base of operations for the Homebrew Computer Club. It was started by Gordon French and Fred Moore, who met at the Community Computer Center. They hoped to start a group that would work together on making computers more accessible, and the first meeting was held on March 5, 1975, in French's garage. The invitation to the group invited developers to come to a gathering of people with like-minded interests, exchange information, swap ideas, talk shop, help work on a project, whatever. The influence of the Homebrew Club is hard to overstate. Members included Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, and Wozniak credited the first meeting as the inspiration to design the Apple I. The club has been described as the crucible for an entire industry, that of personal computing. The group has been depicted in books and movies like Pirates of Silicon Valley and the biopic Jobs. Lawson even recalls interviewing Wozniak for a job at Fairchild before the formation of Apple and says that Wozniak didn't impress him. He was one of only two black members of the club, and Lawson said that his race could be both a plus and a minus. He said that increased attention meant that if you did good, you did twice as good because you got instant notoriety. Many people were surprised when they first met him to find a six-foot-six black man behind the scenes. He was liked at Fairchild, and CEO Wilf Corrigan said that Lawson often came by his office to give his opinions, mainly from the customer perspective, and that he was his good source of feedback. His initial work for Fairchild was in a completely new position as a kind of freelance engineer. 
which meant that he was in the field helping customers with designs. He quickly found that Fairchild was not known for being helpful, and he faced the problem that consumers didn't like working with the company. This started him on a new angle. How the heck to break down that image they have? He proposed to the company to build a mobile laboratory filled with product demos out of a 28-foot van. It was such a success that he built a second one. Lawson put his first coin-operated arcade cabinet of Demolition Derby in a pizza parlor. He'd learned from Al Alcorn, a developer at Atari, about how kids would jiggle wires in the coin slots to get free games, and so he developed a system that prevented that by measuring a coin as it fell past the slot. After he built the arcade, he was contacted by his employers at Fairchild, who asked if he wanted to make video games for them. According to Lawson, the job came from the top of the company. Even his direct boss didn't know what he was doing. He was tasked with working with a company called Alpex, which had made a game using Intel technology, and to engineer the game to work with Fairchild's processors. Working with Alpex engineers, Lawson designed a video game prototype and so impressed the company that they created the Fairchild Video Game Division and put him in charge. What was paramount to our system was to have cartridges, Lawson later explained. The console that he designed would become the Fairchild Channel F, or Channel Fun. Before the Channel F, home video game systems like the Magnavox Odyssey could only play a limited number of games that were built hardwired into the console. The Odyssey didn't even use a computer to run the game, something that simply wasn't possible due to the size and expense of computers. That all changed with the invention of the microprocessor. The Channel F was the first game console to use a microprocessor to run video games, which made them significantly more powerful. His team also had to work on how to make cartridges work without causing an explosion of the semiconductor device. Working without precedent, the engineers had no idea what would happen when a cartridge was inserted and removed many times. Even after figuring out how to make cartridges work, they faced an entirely new beast at the FCC. The Channel F was among the very first microprocessor devices to be tested by the FCC, and the rules his team had to follow were stringent. We had to put the whole motherboard in aluminum. We had a metal chute that went over the cartridge adapter to keep radiation in. The FCC individually tested every new cartridge that the team designed. Lawson also designed the prototype for Fairchild's digital joystick controllers, which predated Atari's joysticks. Lawson also considered the business of selling video game consoles. He said that his background in military work helped, because consumer products actually have to be stronger than military. In the military, he explains, you can train the individual who uses the device and get him in trouble if he misuses it. I can insist that he reads and that he's trained in how to turn it on and turn it off, right? Try that with a consumer. He recalled working the day after Christmas, shortly after the Channel F's release, and fielding calls from consumers who had problems with their new video game console. One had taken the machine apart, looking for where to put the batteries. Another was upset because a dog had peed on it. Finally, with Lawson running out of patience, a woman called and complained that my game hums. Do you know why? And Lawson answered, because it doesn't know the words, lady. The Fairchild Channel F used bright yellow cartridges designed by Nick Telesfore, who based his designs on 8-track tapes. Lawson oversaw all the game designs, which included a maze game that played like later developed Pac-Man, Blackjack, Hockey and Tennis, Hangman, Checkers, Galactic Space Wars, and many others, with 27 cartridges made in total. It had only 64 bytes of RAM, a number which was sometimes augmented by the cartridges. The processor was powerful enough to allow for AI to play against players, another first for the home console market. The Channel F also introduced the pause button to video game consoles. The Channel F reached the market in November of 1976, a full year before the Atari video computer system. 
the console sold for $169, about $760 in $2020, and each cartridge for $19.99, equivalent to about $90 in 2020. In the time before the release of the Atari VCS, the console was modestly successful, selling a quarter of a million units by 1977. Unfortunately, the sales were well under Fairchild's expectations, and the Atari 2600 quickly became the go-to home console system, selling over 30 million units. The Channel F struggled in sales for a few more years before being finally discontinued in 1983. It was not received badly on release, and Ken Houston's Guide to Buying and Beating the Home Video Games, released in 1982, several of the games were reviewed highly, with two called The Finest Adult Cartridges currently available for the Fairchild Channel F. While overall they didn't rank well, he still praised the strength of Channel F offering in excellent educational line for children. In 1983, when it was discontinued, Video Games Magazine rated the console, calling it the System Nobody Knows. Although the Channel F was dated by 83, it still found some positives, calling the Channel F's Blackjack game the best card game made for any TV game system. He left Fairchild and started a company called Videosoft that helped develop video games for the Atari 2600, including one that displayed color bars in the TV. He also worked on a never-released clock with Stevie Wonder. Lawson left the video game industry in 1983 after the video game crash, caused thanks to market saturation and the growing market for personal computer games. He took on consulting work after that, working in a variety of capacities, including in a mentor program with Stanford. Due to complications from diabetes, he lost a leg and an eye, forcing him to use a wheelchair. Despite his pioneering work, he and the Channel F were essentially forgotten until very recently. Lawson participated in a number of conferences talking about his work, and he was brought to the attention of Joseph Salter, a member of the International Game Developers Association, who said that he had never heard of Lawson nor his part in the video game industry. Salter would help have Lawson honored as an industry pioneer in 2011. A month later, in April 2011, Lawson died, leaving behind his wife, who he had married in 1965, and two children. In 2019, he was honored by ID at Xbox with the Gaming Heroes Award for his work leading the development of the first cartridge-based console. Lawson was a humble man who loved his work, but never expected to become famous from it. He was surprised when an autographed copy of the Color Bar cartridge sold for $500. Though his work remained unrecognized for decades, he is now being lauded as a pioneer by people like Alcorn and other industry members for his work. He was featured in the limited series Netflix documentary High Score in 2020. Lawson said that the whole reason I did games was because people said, you can't do it. And I'm one of the guys, if you tell me I can't do something, I'll turn around and do it. Essentially self-taught, Lawson forged a path that would help lead to a multi-billion dollar industry, one which has become a part of many millions of people's lives. Lawson's advice to young people is that you got to step away from the crowd and go do your own thing. You'll find a ground, cover it. It's brand new. You're on your own. You're an explorer. That's about what it's going to be like. Explore new vistas, new avenues, new ways, not relying on everyone else's way to tell you which way to go, and how to go, and what you should be doing. Lawson's life was an example of that, and an inspiration to all of us. Keep exploring. And now comes the part of the episode where we talk to the history guy about what we just heard, and maybe a little bit about what goes on behind the scenes. I had never heard Jerry Lawson's story until recently, and I'm really happy that we were able to talk about him on this episode. His story is cool, too, because despite it being so recent, uh, the creation of cartridges has become something of a uh, cultural moment in addition to a technological one. And so I just wanted to ask, do you remember blowing into an NES cartridge to make it work? 
You know what? Actually, you're a generation off. Uh, and that is the first time I saw an NES is when you were a little boy. Uh, and that uh, when, <laughs> when I was a, a, a kid growing up, we weren't, we weren't wealthy. Uh, and so uh, the, the Atari 2600 or the, the Model F that we talked about in the episode, those were, those were the equivalent of about $1,000. And there's no way we got that gift as a kid. So I think when I was in high school, the first video game I got was, uh, this will really date me here, it was Pong and Breakout. Uh, just those two games, and they were hardwired into it. That was there were no cartridges, so I didn't. And then I went off to college, and I didn't really play video games in that in that early era. I think NES came out around what eighty five, uh, and so really the first time I had experience with NES, those were older game systems. Uh, when you guys were kids, and we bought them because they were cheap, and and you played a lot of NES and uh, a lot of uh, Sega Genesis, and and the college students, because I was teaching at the university, my college students were the ones that really knew them. So it's funny I have blown into those cartridges to make them work, uh, but it, it's not like some part of my childhood. It's something. It's part of my adulthood. It's more part of your childhood, uh, where I had the chance to do that. It's, it's a significant change, and it's funny because today, of course, we've moved away from that. We went to discs, and now we've gone to where you don't even have any any object in your hand. So it's it's funny because uh, your your little sister Willow will probably not remember a world where you had some sort of cartridge or where you had to plug something into your machine in order to uh, in order to play the game. So it's funny that that covered that just that that specific generation that remembers it so vividly. But it's actually right after my generation. I think a lot of people my age didn't uh, didn't have cartridge games. I actually did just get an NES specifically for nostalgia reasons because I remember playing it. I had to keep an old TV because I have the the zapper and it only works on old uh, cathode ray uh, oh. TVs. You can't, it's the technology is, is very specifically based on the lines going across the, the screen. Apparently so duck hunt requires an old TV. Does it? Oh. Yeah. You can't, you can't play it on a, uh, on the new the newfangled LCDs and stuff like that. Oh, that's funny. The dog laughs at you when you miss when you miss the ducks. Yeah, suddenly it's like ancient history, and that I, I think about that too. That kids, it doesn't even seem like they're you know we're that far apart yet. That stuff is not going to be a part of their lives at all. Um, yeah, it's it's funny, and it's a gap in generations. You and I have a very yeah. different experience with video games, just with this one generation in between us, and very different than yeah. your, your little sister is going to have. And it's it's a very fast moving medium, and that's why that story of Jerry Lawson is so interesting. Is that he was there really at the start of what uh, moved that that along, and and kind of the when it first hit that push, where it was moving quickly downstream, he was really a big genesis of that. And so uh, you know, the canoe has moved so far down the stream that people forget that he he was one of those that really gave it the push that allowed it to do that even the games they were the consoles they were designing 15 years later were incredibly different from what he was doing i mean he he could start with you know they were basically making these things in their garage by the time you know by the time of the atari they were massively manufacturing these things and became a completely different a completely different industry i did want to take a moment to talk about the background of the youtube show uh, longtime viewers have probably noticed that you change what's on the shelves frequently. And I kind of wanted to ask if you had a favorite piece that you've put up there. I know there's so many of them, it's probably hard to choose. I, you've known me literally your whole life. Uh, and you know that I've always had trouble saying favorite. I mean, I, 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 if you ask me what's my favorite color or my favorite ice cream flavor, you know, I, I, I don't know, it changes. So I, I don't. I don't have one item up there 
that I like or is more important to me than any other item up there. I can say that the stuff behind me, it's, it's more than just set decoration. It's all stuff that's really personal to me. Some of it's stuff that viewers have sent, uh, obviously like the 100 challenge coins that are behind me or that the, the MIG helmet that people notice a lot, that was actually sent by a viewer or the, the May West uh, life jacket. Uh, some of it's things that have to do with the family. You'll see a set of spurs sometimes. Those actually came from my father. Uh, you'll see a picture of my great uncle up there sometimes. So some of it really goes back in history. And some of it's just stuff that's nostalgic for me and that's why you see a lot of Star Trek stuff and Star Wars stuff and the Robbie the robot and and uh, the, the that kind of stuff uh, back to the future and uh, Ghostbusters it's all just stuff that I remember from my childhood all of that has meaning to me so uh, and of course the hat collection which I've been collecting for an, a number of years and am excited about all the stuff they collect there so uh, really instead of saying you know that I have a, a favorite because I don't know there's anything up there I like more than any other thing is to say that when you when you look up there it, I mean I'm having fun with that uh, but you are actually seeing stuff that really does have a lot of meaning to me about my past, my love of history, my own history. Uh, and that's so I, I love moving the stuff around. It means that I get a shuffle through this collection. And what you're seeing at any given time is maybe 10% of the collection. Uh, people don't realize that I have on the order of 100 uh, uh, 172 tails scale tanks that I move around on that. People will notice when I move some stuff, but they don't seem to notice I've got all sorts of different tanks on there or, or uh, probably twice that number of, of toy cannons. <laughs> <laughs> don't notice I'm shifting the toy cannons around either. Uh, so it's just, it's a lot of stuff. I, I, a couple of things I will call out though, there is, you'll see uh, it's been in there from the start and it's kind of hidden in the back, but there's a high school letter there. I actually earned that high school letter at Hot Springs High School in Hot Springs, South Dakota uh, and call out to the, you know, the mighty bison. Uh, and I've had a couple of friends from high school who I'd lost contact with, hadn't talked to in years who were watching the show and they're like, is that, that looks like the guy I knew in high school. Is that really him? And then they noticed that letter back there and they knew that it had to be me and they've gotten back in touch with me because of it so you can see that bit of my history up there is the, the uh, from hot springs high school hot springs south dakota uh, and i also i think in almost all the episodes i've had this uh, pewter plate that was an award i received when i was doing speaking competitions at the national individual events tournament a couple of people recognized that and they learned some about my past uh, and so there is some stuff up there that's really shows some of my past and has helped people identify the past so uh, do i have a favorite i mean the, my favorite is that i have this ability to go on set and show all the stuff that has so much meaning to me and then people can find and have fun with that and that's that my favorite part of it is that people notice and they and they care and they talk about it and that for some of them it brings up the same sorts of memories and they're like oh that's that's awesome so magellan tv is sponsoring this episode and we'd like to thank them for their sponsorship and we're going to talk a little bit about what we've been watching on magellan because of course we are always watching something on magellan tv so what have you been watching recently Lots of things. Uh, I really enjoy Magellan TV. Uh, one of the ones that we were watching with uh, with my daughter was uh, Dinosaurs Alive, and it's really cool uh, in that it's not. You see lots of you know history, paleontology, dinosaur sort of stuff, but Dinosaurs Alive uh, is animating those uh, in a way that really makes you understand how they lived as real creatures. And so we've had a lot of fun with that. And it's it, you know it's hard to involve a teenager sometimes. You know she's she's just now a teenager. Uh, it's kind of hard to get them involved, and she's she's really enjoyed that. So I. I, I love it. It's another one of those that uh, is worth the price of subscription just for that one episode. And it's another example of how many different kinds of documentaries there are. It doesn't have to be just history. We've got space and we've got archaeology. We've got paleontology. I was one of the interesting ones that I did watch a little bit of was there. They've got a number that are 
Germany from above or Spain from above. And it's actually really cool because it's just, it's such a different perspective of these beautiful landscapes and beautiful cityscapes and stuff like that, that we don't, we don't get to see it from, from the sky. And they always have really, really nice quality camera work. And it's, it's just beautiful. It's a really cool way to do it. Yeah, there's a lot of also World War II, a lot of people love that sort of stuff, the stuff that you might be used to more on documentary channels that are that you love, but also all sorts of, you know, science and space. And I mean, there's, you could you could put together a, a dozen channels and you get with some Magellan TV, more than 3000 documentaries. I've never even started one that I didn't love and watch all the way through. It's run by the filmmakers, which is really, uh, uh, you can tell that it's a labor of love. It's really, I mean, I, I just, I love Magellan TV. I love my subscription Magellan TV. I'm happy to talk about it. And, uh, and uh, very thankful that they have been so kind as to sponsor our podcast and our YouTube channels. Try.MagellanTV.com slash History Guy. And if you go there uh, to sign up, uh, then you will get some sort of deal. Those deals change, but I mean, you usually get at least a, a, a free month and, and some extra time uh, and uh, for you to try it out. Can't recommend it enough to everybody. Uh, try Magellan TV. If you like history and the History Guy, you'll love Magellan TV. But if you like science or space or uh, literature or art, or uh, true crime or any of that. There's documentaries on everything on Magellan TV and every documentary is worth the, 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 the amount that you pay for a monthly subscription. It's, it's truly a great product. I hope you enjoyed that opportunity to learn a little more about The History Guy. Next, The History Guy is going to talk about Bessie Coleman, an early aviation pioneer and one of the first women to earn a pilot's license. Despite numerous obstacles, Coleman's passion for flying always won out. It is history that deserves to be remembered. World War I transformed the airplane from a novelty into a war machine, and after the war left a glut of trained pilots in the United States who had little way to earn a living with their newfound skills. Many of them tried their luck trying to impress the public with daring feats of aviation in flying circuses, or what has been called barnstorming. And barnstorming then offered a unique opportunity for women and minorities to break into the new field of aviation and earn a living. One of those women was Bessie Coleman, known in the air as Queen Bess or Brave Bessie. Her determination to shape the course of her life despite significant obstacles is history that deserves to be remembered. Elizabeth Bessie Coleman was born on January 26, 1892 in Atlanta, Texas, a small town near the state's border with Louisiana and Arkansas. She was the tenth child of 13 of George Coleman, who was part Cherokee, and Susan Coleman, who was African American. When she was two, they moved to Waxahachie, Texas, near Dallas, where the family worked as sharecroppers. Bessie worked in the cotton fields at a young age and helped her family annually to harvest acorns. Her father hoped to escape Jim Crow by going to the Indian Territory in 1901, but her mother refused and stayed with the children in Texas. As a child, she is said to have promised to amount to something. Bessie proved to be a diligent student, completed eight grades in a one-room schoolhouse. She attended the Missionary Baptist Church School from age 12 on a scholarship. She saved money to attend the Oklahoma Colored Agricultural and Normal University in Langston, Oklahoma, where she completed one term before her money ran out. She later moved to Chicago to live with her brother, and after she took a course in manicuring, she worked at the White Sox Barbershop, owned by the trainer of Chicago's American League Baseball team. In the book Queen Bass, Daredevil Aviator, Doris Rich recounts that in 1919, her brother showed up drunk one day and teased her about her job. He had served with the Army in France during World War I and frequently told her that the women there had more opportunities. Women ain't never gonna fly, not like those women I saw in France, he said. 
That's it, Bessie replied. You just called it for me. It was not simple for Bessie to earn her pilot license. She applied at almost every American school, but none of them were willing to teach a black and Native American woman to fly. Determined to fly, but unable to find a way to learn, Bessie turned her mind to France. There, black pilots had flown during World War I, and there were also licensed female pilots. There, she thought, neither her race nor her gender could stop her. Robert Sangstack Abbott, lawyer and publisher of the Chicago Defender, the most successful black-owned newspaper of the time, did some research and found that French flight schools remained more open-minded and encouraged her to go there. Abbott publicized Bessie's goals in his newspaper and she was able to find financial backing. She also learned French and took a job managing a restaurant to earn money for the trip. She left for France on November 20, 1920, aboard the SS Imperator. She was accepted at the School of Aviation of the Brothers Caudron, managed by aviators and designers Gaston and René Caudron. She learned to fly in a 26-foot-long Newport 14 Type 82 in a seven-month course. Originally designed as a reconnaissance aircraft, wartime needs for its type of engine in SPAD 7 fighters meant few saw service. As a training aircraft, the Type 82 version was more common. The plane had two cockpits, one for the instructor and another behind it for the student. It had no steering wheel or brakes, just a large wooden stick and rudder. To stop once it landed, a metal skid dragged along the ground. She earned her international aviation license from the Federation Aeronautique Internationale, becoming the first black person and the first Native American to do so on June 15, 1921. The training was not without its drama. While she was there, she witnessed an accident where another student was killed. It was a terrible shock to my nerves, but I never lost them, she said. I kept going. She returned to the U.S. in September of 1921, where she was met by interested reporters from air magazines and black newspapers. The Air Service News said she'd returned as a full-fledged aviatrix. She was front-page news in most black newspapers, and she said she intended to make flights in this country as an inspiration for people of her race to take up aviation. Her primary goal was to start an aviation school for African Americans in the United States. Despite her skills, she was still turned down for pilot jobs in commercial aviation, which there are of course few in 1921. Deciding that the only way that she would be able to earn a living as a pilot was to perform as a barnstormer, but feeling she needed to hone her skills, she returned to France in May of 1922. There she trained with German World War I ace Captain Keller and test piloted planes in the Netherlands for the Dutch airplane manufacturer Anthony Fokker. She perfected many of the necessary skills for stunt piloting, such as figure eights, loops, strict climbs, and tailspins. When she returned in August of 1922, she had a lot of new credits to her name. European news articles spoke of foreign royalty entertaining her, and she had an article where Fokker praised her as the only American aviator who ever crossed the Kaiser's Palace at Potsdam. The New York Times declared she was considered by leading French and Dutch aviators as one of the best flyers they had ever seen. She flew her first air show on Labor Day 1922 in Garden City on Long Island with several other pilots. The show was in honor of the Harlem Hellfighters, one of the first African-American regiments sent to France during World War I. She dazzled the crowd with spirals and loops, and later aviation pioneer Hubert Fauntleroy Julian, known as the Black Eagle, parachuted from the wing of her plane. She finished by offering rides for $5 apiece, the equivalent of about $75 today. She was invited to star in the film Shadow and Sunshine, which was being produced by an African-American film company, but when she arrived on set, she found out that they intended for the first scene for her to be filmed in rags, so she refused. Biographer Doris Rich said that Bessie had no intention of perpetuating the derogatory image that most whites had of blacks. Her fame in the African-American community grew, and she was touted as the world's only black aviatrix. 
Her shows often had patriotic themes, and she continued to honor African-American regiments in her barnstorming career. Barnstorming pilots performed stunts alone or in groups as flying circuses, and the shows became hugely popular after World War I. Commercial jobs for pilots were limited, and for many, performing tricks was the only way to earn a living as a pilot. Charles Foster Willard is considered the first barnstormer and is also credited as the first man to be shot down in an airplane when a farmer broke his propeller with a squirrel gun in June 1910. However, the performances wouldn't become popular until the 1920s. Barnstorming season ran from early spring until the harvest when pilots would perform at county fairs. The shows often started with a plane flying over a rural town to attract attention before landing at a local farm where they would negotiate with the owner to use the field as a runway for the show. And that's where the term barnstorming comes from. They would then drop flyers over the town before performing. Sometimes a whole town would shut down to attend the air show. Afterward, pilots would offer rides for a fee. Though it was glamorous and exciting, it was not an easy way to make a living. Many pilots had to hold other jobs to stay afloat, and often offered rides in exchange for room and board. In addition to the basic tricks, pilots would fly through barns, while aerialists also did stunt parachuting, wing walking, and even mid-air transfers between planes. Some stunts even included playing tennis or doing target shooting while standing on the wings of the plane. Coleman loved her job. She said that the air is the only place free from prejudices. She was also a consummate showman and aware that the newspaper was her only way to sculpt public opinion and publicize her career. Throughout her career, she was guilty of telling many exaggerations and even outright falsehoods to dramatize her story, something she had in common with many of her contemporaries. Roscoe Turner, a speed pilot, regularly wore a lion tamer outfit when he performed and flew with his pet lion, Gilmore. She told one paper she had learned to fly volunteering for the Red Cross during the war and regularly said she was 24, though she was 30 in 1922. The Chicago Defender worked tirelessly to promote her, calling her the world's greatest woman flyer. She bought her first plane, a surplus Curtis J&4 Jenny, in February of 1923 in Los Angeles. Unfortunately, shortly after she bought it, the engine stalled after takeoff at an altitude of 300 feet. The plane nosedived and crashed, but she survived with several broken ribs, a broken leg, and some serious lacerations. It took her three months to leave the hospital in L.A., and when she returned to Chicago, she did lectures at the YMCA to make ends meet. But she soon returned to barnstorming, including in 1925 a tour of the South. When she performed on June 19, 1925, the 60th anniversary of when Union troops entered Texas to enforce the Emancipation Proclamation, the Houston Informer said it was the first time the colored public of the South had been given the opportunity to fly. She refused to appear in any shows that denied attendance to blacks. She even returned to her hometown in Waxahachie. At another show in Wharton, Texas, a parachutist failed to show, and when the crowd began demanding their money back, she put on a parachute and performed the feat herself. During her time as a barnstormer, she also spoke at churches and anywhere else that would listen to her adventures and watch clips of her flying. She was happy to share her dreams of a flight school for African Americans, which she was always tirelessly working towards. She never did charge admission to students who heard her speak, knowing that they were the future of aviation. She stayed for a time with the Reverend Hezekiah Hill and his wife Viola in Orlando, Florida, where she opened a beauty shop with Viola for a time and saved extra money to buy her own plane. In the spring of 1926, she was invited to perform at the annual celebration of the Negro Welfare League on May 1st in Jacksonville, Florida. Edwin Beeman, a rich white man and sole heir of the Beeman Chewing Gun Company, was fascinated by flying and gave Bess the money for her final airplane payment. The money for the show and an accompanying speaking tour promised to help bring her dream of a flight school true. 
William D. Willis, a mechanic and pilot for the Curtis Southwestern Airplane and Motor Company, flew Bessie's Jenny from Texas to Jacksonville, but found that the engine had been so poorly maintained that it could only manage 60 of its 90 horsepower, and had to make two extra stops to deal with engine problems. On April 29th, she drove to the airfield with John Batch, who was managing publicity for the upcoming show, and had been promised a ride in the plane after Coleman had finished the test flight. For the task, she asked Willis to pilot so she could look for a good place to jump for the show. She didn't put on her strap so she would be able to look out over the cockpit. At 3,000 feet, the plane went into a nosedive, and at 2,000 feet, it suddenly flipped over, tossing Bessie out. She died on impact. Willis fell with the plane and also died. Shortly after, while two police were trying to extract Willis's body, the distraught Betch lit a cigarette. Gasoline from the plane ignited and the wreckage went up in flames. They later found that a loose wrench had gotten into the plane's controls and jammed them midair, causing the crash. Bessie Coleman never saw her dream of an African-American flight school come to fruition, but three years after her death, Lieutenant William J. Powell walked the last mile and established the Bessie Coleman Aero Club in Los Angeles. The group staged the first all-black air show in the United States on Labor Day, 1931, which was attended by 15,000 people. In his book, Black Wings, which he dedicated to Coleman, Powell said that because of Bessie Coleman, we have overcome that which was worse than racial barriers. We have overcome the barriers within ourselves and dared to dream. Mae Jemison, the first African-American woman in space, said, I point to Bessie Coleman and say, here's a woman, a being, who exemplifies and serves as a model for all humanity, the very definition of strength, dignity, courage, integrity, and beauty. When she died, Bessie Coleman was just 34 years old. Many mainstream newspapers didn't even mention her death. They focused on the death of Willis, who was white, but her death was front page news on many black newspapers. Her body lay in state, both in Florida and Chicago, where journalist Ida B. Wells held a ceremony that was attended by 10,000 people. Bessie Coleman's name now adorns many streets near important airports like Chicago's O'Hare, Oakland International Airport, and Frankfurt International in Germany. In 2019, the New York Times published her obituary in part of their Overlooked series of obituaries for people whose original deaths had not been noted in the New York Times. While she never established her flight school, she inspired many people of all races to pursue careers in flight, including that of her nephew. And since 1931, it has been a tradition for black pilots to drop flowers over the grave of Bessie Coleman at Lincoln Cemetery in Chicago. While she died young, it is certain that she fulfilled her childhood vow. Bessie Coleman most certainly amounted to something. Bessie Coleman's story is so great and for so many different reasons. What do you think makes her story so inspiring? You know, there's there's a lot. I mean, she's someone who just never took no for an answer. And not only that, but she was someone that told others, look, you know, when they tell you no, just don't listen to them. And she she put her time and her money where her mouth is so that because of what she did, they actually opened up schools and got people involved in aviation who might not have become involved in aviation. She did it. One of the things that's striking about Bessie Coleman when you research her is that you just never see a picture where she isn't just with that big, bright smile. I mean, she just enjoyed life and she just didn't let anybody tell her that she shouldn't. And it's, you know, it's a tragic story too, because because like so many early aviators, aviation got to her, you know, I mean, they, they we're doing a dangerous thing and, and uh, you know, a wrench ended up you know, costing her life. But she, uh, she's inspir inspirational for so many reasons. And one of them uh, is that uh, she really 
popularized aviation at a time when you might think that it was really something that only someone exceptional could do. I mean, she was exceptional, but she was telling the story that anybody can do this. And uh, without, you know, people doing that, aviation might not have become what it became. So, I mean, she truly had an important impact on that important technology and that history because she was the sort of person who not only never took no for an answer, but went and did what people said that they couldn't do and did it with a smile. And I, I mean, what's more inspirational than that? I mean, extraordinary person. If I could go back in history and talk to someone, I'd love to just talk to her and see, you know, what she was like, because it's, it's so extraordinary what she was doing at a time when, you know, everybody said she shouldn't be able to do it. Willing to push herself beyond uh, any, any boundary. And no matter what, no matter what they put up in front of her, I mean, it's incredible. It's incredible alone that she decided that she was going to go get taught in France and did that. Because so, that, that was not a, I mean, especially, you know, in the early 20th century, that wasn't going to be easy for anybody. And she, she made it happen because, because she believed in it. She was passionate yeah. about it. Yeah, I mean, just the, the whole, it's, it's not even about, you know, the fact that she was uh, you know, African-American and, and, and Native American ancestry and a woman and no one thought she'd get a license. Anybody, that would have been difficult to do. She just went and did it. Uh, and I, I, I just, uh, uh, she, such an intelligent, such a vibrant, uh, such a passionate person. Uh, and that makes for just wonderful, wonderful storytelling. And she's, uh, it was a real pleasure to talk about her. And I think she's a real inspiration to everybody. You wonder what else she might have been able to inspire if she had gone forward and been able to start a school, but her legacy is still incredible and worth talking about. And it's um, still simply a good message. Don't ever let someone tell you no, you can't. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed these stories of forgotten history, and if you did, you can find more on our YouTube channel at The History Guy. History deserves to be remembered. We will continue to release podcasts every other week, so stick around if you want more podcasts on forgotten history. You can also find us on our website, thehistoryguy.net, and on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Rumble, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.